Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the Free Moot Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. This month we're starting with an important case concerning the hostile environment and the latest hardline deportation decisions. We're going to be discussing immigration detention, including a case on the impact of coronavirus, before covering benefits, removals of migrants with children, immigration tribunal procedure, always fascinating, and some mild controversy about um, lawyers and judges in the first-tier tribunal. This is episode 76 and we're covering the events of April 2020. If you want to claim um, CPD for listening to this podcast, then head over to freemovement, www.freemovement.org.uk slash training, and you can sign up as a member there where we can provide you with quizzes and that sort of thing. Right, CJ, over to you. Yes, first to a subject that we cover a lot on free movement, the hostile environment or compliant environment, a system of checks on fellow citizens to make sure they're legally in the country. And a key plank of that hostile environment system is right to rent, landlords being obliged to check the papers of people trying to rent a house and turn away unauthorised migrants. Um, The High Court found last year, as is probably well known, that the right to rent scheme is unlawful uh, because it ends up with landlords discriminating against foreigners where they wouldn't otherwise. But this month, the Court of Appeal has reversed that High Court decision. The case is Secretary of State for the Home Department and Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, 2020 EWCA Civ 542. And quite an emphatic reversal, I, I, I think. There, there was a majority judgment finding that there is a bit of discrimination caused by right to rent, but not that much discrimination and, and it could be justified. And then there was a minority judgment that went even further on the government side, really strongly backing the Home Office and, and really very dismissive of the whole challenge. So a, a disappointing outcome, Colin. Yeah, it's certainly very disappointing for campaigners, um, lawyers and those affected by right to rent as well. And I think it's important to emphasise that the the court didn't find that this scheme doesn't cause discrimination. They found that it actually, the majority, as you say, found that it does cause discrimination, but they found that um, it wasn't unlawful, basically. And essentially, they seem to differ from the court below the the judgment of Mr. Justice Martin Spencer um, by accepting really that MPs knew what they were doing when they they passed it into law um so yeah it is it is pretty disappointing um and it seems certainly likely I mean don't want to to jinx it by saying that that um this isn't necessarily the end for the litigation and it it might well find its way up to the Supreme Court um which, which would certainly be very interesting to see yeah, Zoe Gardner from JCWI has written a piece for us on the website, and and she does say that they'll be that they'll be appealing to the Supreme Court. What what's their strongest line of argument in the Supreme Court? Do you think what what will what point will they be pressing? The strong argument seemed to be that you know it, it, there's quite compelling evidence that it does um, increase discrimination, and there's, there's plenty of evidence that there's loads of discrimination in the housing market anyway, and um, you know there's evidence that this makes it worse. Um, I, I, with something like this, though, in some ways the strong arguments are often quite political when it comes down to it. Um, I think that's not to say that there aren't also strong legal arguments, but. Um, you know, the, the, a more success, you know, they might find that there's more success outside the courts than inside the courts, perhaps, in, in challenging something like this. Let's uh, move to deportation. And there was a case that raised some eyebrows because of the background of the person being deported. He had served in the Royal Marines for 14 years, including in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
but after he was discharged, he was convicted of, of swindling a little old lady out of quite a lot of money and is now lined up for deportation. The tribunal and the Court of Appeal judges, when he appealed the deportation, all found that there were no very compelling circumstances in his case, which was the, the relevant legal test. But they also sort of kept stressing that their hands were tied and the laws, the law um, seemed sympathetic. But I think Nick, who wrote up the case, felt that this was a bit of a cop out when they could have used that very compelling circumstances test to to let him stay if they really felt so strongly about it. Um, the, the citation of the case, anyway, L.E. St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Secretary of State 2020 EWCA Civ 505. Uh, Colin, your thoughts? Yeah, I'd, I'd like Nick's turn of phrase as, as ever. This, his stuff's always well worth reading. He, he talks about upper judge, um, um, upper tribunal judge Perkins appearing to self dissent, um, which, which I thought was a nice way of putting it. Um, and, you know, we, we see language here about military service without more will not amount, always amount to just like the stuff on children and so on. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, these are potentially things that could actually, um, count as, as, very compelling circumstances and so on. Um, but judges are repeatedly finding that um, they, they prefer not to find that, essentially. It doesn't feel like the statutory language prevents this from from being sufficient. And as Nick says, it doesn't take much digging to realise that, you know, 14 years of military service, it, it particularly the stuff that this guy did, you know, it was very active service. It was um, particularly brutal fighting this 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 gentleman was involved in. Um you know that that could that could have mounted to to very compelling circumstances, and and Nick also talks about the apparent. Of course, it's always difficult as an outsider to litigation, but the apparent lack of medical evidence in this case, um, and it's a bit surprising that more hadn't been done, perhaps, and it, it, you know, it could have been on the instructions of of the appellant, but more hadn't been done to potentially tie together his subsequent very bad behaviour. I mean, what he did was 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 very bad. Um, to the experiences he'd had during his military service, uh, possibility post-traumatic stress disorder and, and, and that kind of thing. Let's go to another Court of Appeal deportation case from this month. And uh, surprise, surprise, it's another win for the Home Office. Uh, this one is, oh, sorry, not, not Court of Appeal, in fact, it's Upper Tribunal, um, but it's called uh, Imran, Section 117C5, Children on Duty Harsh, 2020, UK, UK. T83 IAC. Um, and the legal issue it raises is, is reasonably familiar. If a person being deported has kids who would be sort of emotionally damaged by the loss of their parent, does that make it unduly harsh to kick, to deport the person? Unduly harsh being another of the legal tests in deportation law. Uh, the cases, I think, generally say no. There has to be some kind of massive impact on the child for this factor to, to sway a judge. Um, I think in the case they mentioned the diagnosis of psychiatric psychiatric injury would would sort of do the trick um in this case the argument was more that the child was very dependent on the father to be deported particularly attached um but that wasn't enough uh, was the finding i think there there needed to be more to satisfy this unduly harsh test uh, Colin, what do you think yeah not a lot really on this one I, it's, it's, it seems like a fairly um Fairly standard case, I'm, I'm sorry to say. I mean, you know, there are, there are a lot of families who are affected by these rules. Um, it's, it's a bit of a mystery why something which turns on its facts in this way ends up being reported by the tribunal again when we've already got, you know, oodles of, of guidance to this effect. Um, and if the hope of the tribunal is to, to reiterate what the law already is, 
then frankly, they need to do a much better job writing their headnotes uh, because it's almost incomprehensible, even to, you know, a, a fairly sort of experienced immigration lawyer like me. So yeah, not, not much to add on this one. Fair enough. A familiar complaint about headnotes, I think. Let's go to immigration detention. And the first significant court judgment involving coronavirus has come down in the detention context. Uh, that is the detention action case in the High Court. Citation 2020 EWHC 732 admin. This was broadly, well, this was an attempt to get migrants who are particularly vulnerable to coronavirus released from detention centers as a group. And I think with a longer term view to getting everyone out down the line, but uh, the focus immediately was on vulnerable migrants uh, and an application for uh, interim relief. Uh, The High Court said no, and it was in a way quite scathing about detention actions, interim relief application. They seem to say that once the Home Office gave assurances about how wonderfully everyone is being looked after in terms of coronavirus, that the charity should have just banked those rather than press for a full hearing. Yeah, and and costs were rewarded to reflect that as well. Costs were rewarded against detention action in this case. Um, I haven't been following what's what's the latest development on this litigation. I assume that it's been taken further. So um, I, I don't know whether that's going to be a, a sort of final decision or not. But I... The, the fact is that the Home Office has released an awful lot of immigration detainees. There is a, a sort of small core that still seem to be detained, uh, just a few hundred now, I think. So the, the numbers in detention have dramatically fallen. Um, on the face of it, it is difficult to understand how anybody can be detained because you know the law is fairly clear um, in saying that there's got to be a, a realistic prospect of removal. And it's hard to see how there can be a realistic prospect of removal in the current circumstances. But you know, that's without being privy to what the Home Office um, arguments are in the case and what they say they're planning on doing to to remove people. So um, the, and certainly there's been a successful campaign to get people out of detention. Um, and although this, this it certainly isn't a win, it's an interim relief decision and that there may be more to come, I don't know. Yeah, what's interesting is that the Home Office and I think individual presenting officers are apparently relying on this decision when it comes to individual immigration bail applications. So they're, you know, going up and saying, well, look, the High Court says we're doing everything wonderfully referred to the detention action judgment. But it really has no application to an individual bail decision, right? It's more about the overall, you know, do we have to let everyone out or not? Yeah, it's it's a... I think it's an opportunity to mention the infamous letter, isn't it, from um, sort of senior senior civil servant at the Home Office to um, to the head of the first tier tribunal, saying that the Home Office is surprised at the the number of grants of bail, um, and then the the rather polite but scathing reply from from the judge saying, "Well, look, we're, we're following the law, we're applying the law." And it would be a bit more helpful if the Home Office would engage in in the facts um, on on individual decisions and and make some. You know, some some specific arguments in those cases which they're just failing to do um so yeah it's it's it is i think you're absolutely right it is strange to see the home office just taking this as a sort of general endorsement of their decision to detain anybody um which it certainly isn't um but you know i suppose they have to to clutch at straws to take their wins where they can find them yeah, yeah. um Another just small piece of detention news, uh, the Immigration Inspector uh, this month released a report that is very critical of the Home Office. Uh, 
déjà vu. Uh, this time it is about the adults at risk policy, uh, which he says uh, isn't working. Although he phrases it more politely, but that's that's the gist. Um, important reading if you're interested in detention issues. It came out on 29th of April, but we'll leave people to read that in their own time. Yeah, just just quickly before we move on from that one, um, I noticed that um, David Bolt, the current chief inspector, um, is retiring. I don't know whether that's uh, through his choice or whether he's he's been told to move on, basically. Um, but they're recruiting for a new inspector. And it's been quite interesting over the course of his kind of five years in post, watching the change in his language and attitude to the home office, because he started off, um, I think, deferential is is not quite the right word, um, but he starts off very optimistic, shall we say, about um, how the Home Office would respond to his reports. And he was very shy of using strong language, of, of um, going through the press and so on, unlike his um, predecessor, John Vine. And we've sort of seen his, his latter reports get increasingly frustrated, the language get increasingly tough. Um, and I imagine that his successor may well go through a similar process of starting very mild and and getting more um, frustrated as time goes on. I don't I don't know. It's like a character arc in a novel or something. You can see the yeah, uh, see yeah the exactly. Change, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, these recruitment processes seem to take like a year or so for these kind of big public appointments with the Home Office. So we'll we'll see how long it takes to get a successor. Um, Let's turn then to a case about migrants' access to benefits, which is quite topical given uh, coronavirus and the hardship that that has caused. The High Court has confirmed that EU citizens who have pre-settled status can't use that status to establish their eligibility for universal credit. And that is the case of Fretti. Fratila and Tenace 2020 EWHC998 admin. Colin, from what I gather with the case, now benefits are, are quite a complicated area, but it's not saying that people with pre-settled status can't get universal credit. It's just that they have to jump through a lot more hoops than they would if than they would if the case had gone in their favour. Yeah, and you, basically that pre-settled status isn't of itself sufficient to claim universal credit. Um, you, you basically, if you're in that situation and you've been, you, you've either got pre-settled status and that is actually genuinely all you're entitled to, or, um, uh, there are potentially large cohort of people who applied for settled status, but were instead granted, um, pre-settled status and who perhaps are actually entitled if they can prove it to settled status, because they have been here for, for five years, um, the problem is that um, the pre-settled status isn't enough under the regulations and they'll also need to apply for um, EU residence documents to prove that they actually are a qualified person or somehow, you know, get, get hold of full settled status. Um, and it's, you know, that that's regrettable at this time. It's um, it's making life unnecessarily difficult for, for those caught in this position. And we know from the EU settlement scheme statistics that, you know, quite a few people would have expected, we don't know this stats exactly because the Home Office is quite cagey about all this stuff. We don't know how many people applied for settled status but were granted pre-settled status and therefore potentially caught by these rules. Um, we're hoping the Home Office will tell us at some point. <laughs> yeah, we shall see. Um, cool, that was helpful. Let's go then to the removal of migrants with families in the UK. We have a couple of cases on that sort of loose theme, uh, separate from the context of criminal deportation uh, that we discussed earlier. The first is RUNA, uh, 2020 EWCA Civ 514. 
Uh, Ms. Runa arrived in the UK from Bangladesh at the age of 14 back in 2006 and has been here, I think, ever since without leave to remain. She married a British man. Uh, they have two British kids. Um, and there were sort of several issues in her appeal, as maybe you'd expect with such a long uh, residency. Uh, one that maybe to focus on was about whether it's reasonable for the children the British children to go and live in Bangladesh with their mother if, if she had to leave. The Court of Appeal held that this reasonableness question is a, a standalone assessment uh, and it's not part of a more general look at the human rights implications of removing the parent. Colin, is that a significant finding in practical terms or is this it's sort of angels on pinhead? It seems quite complicated, basically. <laughs> It, it it is quite complicated. There's a really good write up by um, Karma Hickman, um, who's one of our newer contributors. I think it is quite an important decision actually, because um, the Court of Appeal seems to be trying to simplify um, the decision making process, and you know it, it doesn't seem that simple when you read the judgment, frankly. But what they're really saying is that um, the upper tribunal had asked itself the wrong questions here and gotten kind of distracted by issues about whether it would be reasonable for the children to remain in the UK without their mother or whether it would, there would be insurmountable obstacles to maintaining the family unit outside the UK. And that's just, that's not what section 117B6B, God, you just saying that's ridiculous, isn't it? Um, that's not what that section um, asks, actually. It's just whether it's reasonable um, for the children to leave the UK. So, um, you know, potentially this cuts through quite a lot of stuff and, and judges should be encouraged to sort of um, try and focus on what the statutory test is here. And if the statutory test isn't met, then there's a slightly more complex Article 8 assessment that will follow from it. Um, but, um, you know, this this hopefully makes things a bit more straightforward in these cases. Another case then um, involving someone with a family in the UK but no leave themselves. This was a lady named Miss Eunice who uh, arrived to visit her British husband while pregnant with their child. Um, and as a visitor, she tried to apply to stay in the UK long term from inside the country, um, which the Home Office doesn't like. And neither does the Upper Tribunal, it appears, because it she had a string of arguments about why she should be allowed to, to do this, but it rejected them all. Um, the case is Eunice Section 170B6B. There it is again. Chikwamba Zabrano, Pakistan, 2020 UKUT 129 IAC. I think, Colin, overall, the message, certainly from Ian Halday's write-up of the case is don't come as a visitor and try to stay on. Uh, but was there anything else that jumped out for, for you? Yeah, I, I think it, yeah, it's, it, it's important with this one to remember that the facts, um, or the facts as found, at least, weren't sympathetic, um, which is a euphemism for saying the facts as found were terrible, basically. And, you know, there was, there's a finding of deception um, on, or, or, on in, in the intention to come to the UK and then overstay or, or, or make a variation application, rather. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily draw too many lessons from this case in terms of application in other situations. And I think, you know, all or most immigration lawyers will have come across cases where somebody's in the UK as a visitor, but there are really compelling reasons why somebody needs to apply to stay on and why it's just ridiculous for them to to be forced to leave. I can remember one case I dealt with a few years back where um, it was somebody relatively elderly had had a terrible accident and his wife was in the UK as a visitor at the time um, and the Home Office refused her permission to stay as a spouse, even though you know, her husband only needed 24-hour care. And it's just like, you know, th those kind of facts shouldn't you shouldn't be 
uh, discouraged from <laughs> from putting you know what, what's a good argument on facts like that um, by a case like this where the the facts are, are unsympathetic. That's a useful corrective. Let's then go to our we've we've a bunch of uh, upper tribunal cases on various aspects of procedure and so on. Uh, the first is our Bajrakarya and Secretary of State. Paragraph 34, Variation Validity, 2019 UKUT 417 IAC. And the finding here is that if you apply to vary a pending immigration application and the variation application is invalid, that does not affect the validity of the underlying application. It's not going to be varied like you wanted, but it's still there to be considered by the Home Office. Uh, sensible, Colin? Yeah, I, I, I like. I think it was Ian Halliday who wrote this one up. Like him, I was a bit surprised that the the home the tribunal didn't side with the Home Office actually on some of these arguments. Um, but it, it's it's quite helpful for the very few people who find themselves in this situation. Great. Next case is uh, we've headlined on the website: people who lied to the Home Office are unlikely to get indefinite leave to remain, which I dare say is true in general. But the point was being made here by the Upper Tribunal in the context of these tax discrepancy cases under Paragraph three two two five of the rules which we've talked about a few times before uh, the uh, chap in question here had been found to be dishonest uh, but he was still granted limited leave to remain because of his family ties he went to judicial review to push for indefinite leave to remain instead and the upper tribunal really just points out that it's really not likely that someone in this situation where there's a finding of dishonesty uh, will be able to get indefinite as opposed to limited uh, leave to remain and there's court of appeal authority in the Baladjigari case to that effect uh, so the citation are Mansour and Secretary of State Baladjigari effective judges decision 2020 UKUT 126 IAC yeah not not much to add on this one and it, it's it, of course it's conditional on there being a finding of dishonesty and it's not it shouldn't be assumed that everybody in this situation has actually been dishonest of course um it also raises the question of how to challenge a finding of dishonesty so if you if you maintain that you you were being honest throughout and you just made a mistake and the home office um doesn't accept that um you know is it feasible to somehow litigate in order to get that um, factual finding by the home office overturned is that the function of an immigration judge in any way questionable frankly but but you know it's an interesting issue i'm going to park that and not actually answer it at all <laughs> yeah discuss um finally for this procedure section a case that makes actually two procedural points so we, we might run on a little as we discuss them both um it's called MH Review Slip Rule Church Witnesses Iran 2020 UKUT 125 IAC. And the first point it makes is about the slip rule in the tribunal's procedures. So this is where judges can get out the tipex and correct a, quote, clerical mistake or other accidental slip or omission, end quote, in one of their decisions. And it had been thought that this rule couldn't be used to completely reverse the effect of a judgment. So if a judge accidentally writes appeal allowed at the end of a judgment instead of appeal dismissed, you couldn't use a slip rule to reverse that. And that was the case of Katsanga from 2016. But in MH, the upper tribunal finds that Katsanga was wrong. And if the judge obviously intended to rule one way and went the other because of a slip of a pen or a brain fart, then the slip rule can be used to correct the mistake rather than go through an entire appeal. Is that useful, Carl? Yes, I, the, the Katsunga decision seemed like a. it was a bit too clever, frankly. So yes, nice to see that one being overturned. Cool. The, the second point in this MH case was to do with the religious asylum cases. And 
it, it, it finds that the evidence of fellow worshippers about someone converting to Christianity should not be afforded the status of expert evidence. So it's, it's perfectly good evidence, uh, I think, but it, it doesn't have that special expert status. And that's a different stance than the Court of Session in Scotland took on this issue in a case that we reported a couple of years back, so worth being aware of. Finally, okay, we have just... A little time for a couple of cases involving uh, mild controversy with judges, which is always fun. Um, The first one is WA Role and Duties of Judge Egypt 2020 UK UT 127 IAC. And here, the first year judge had stopped an asylum hearing during cross-examination of the appellant and told him to go away and prepare a new statement that better addressed the Home Office's questions. Uh, The Home Office understandably interpreted this as the judge stepping in against them just as things were going badly for the appellants perhaps um the upper tribunal finds that judges should only have a supervisory role in giving evidence not sort of getting really uh, taking these big steps and if there is an unusual intervention like this there has to be a really good record kept by the judge or by the court of what happens and why which didn't seem to be the case here i think yeah you do have to wonder what the judge was thinking here i mean when you just state the facts in that bold way um yeah <laughs> granted an adjournment during cross-examination you do think what um but uh, yeah there we go let's move on <laughs> Fair enough. There's also a case on cost that's also interesting for the background because of what judges did. Um, The well-known firm Duncan Lewis have a lot of immigration lawyers and two of them were appointed part-time judges in Birmingham early last year. And the tribunal decided that two Duncan Lewis people being both lawyers and judges at the same hearing centre gave rise to an appearance of bias or, or whatever and said that the firm could no longer have any appeals in Birmingham at all. And instead, they would have to go to West London, to Hatton Cross, for all their all Duncan Lewis cases. Um, Duncan Lewis weren't happy, and the uh, president, Clements, eventually backed down after some legal action. But there's been a high court judgment finding that the firm is also entitled to their costs in, in suing over that issue. Uh, so bad news for the tribunal there. The case is DPNK and Lord Chancellor, 2020 WHC 736 admin. And yeah, unusual situation, Colin, or, or common? Yeah, it's it's a strange one. This it's Duncan Lewis do take the tribunal's court from time to time. They're, they've had a few JRs against tribunal fairs, different things, and I think they're, they're quite careful about the cases that they they take because you know sometimes the tribunal isn't entirely reasonable. And this is a, an example of a really weird, very London centred policy that I think kind of grew up because um, the the first sort of serious tranche of um, practicing immigration lawyers to become part-time judges were basically London-based. And in London, it's fine because you can just list cases at the other London tribunal, uh, Handcross and Taylor House are the two tribunals. Whereas in Birmingham, you know, making appellants go all the way to Hatton Cross is just ridiculous. And obviously that's going to have commercial implications for the firm concerned. So it was a really, really stupid for the tribunal to, to dig their heels on this one, frankly. Um, they should have just said, yeah, okay, yes, of course we're going to amend our policy. Absolutely, yeah, it's a strange one. Uh, finally, a case that puts the spotlight more on the behaviour of lawyers than of judges. This is BANO, Procedural Fairness Withdrawal of Representatives 2019 UKUT 416 IAC. 
what seemed to happen here was that the there was an appeal coming up. Uh, the appellant's uh, documents went in a little late, so there wasn't much time left. And so the Home Office response only arrived the day before the hearing. Uh, but it contained very, I think, unpleasant news for the appellant's lawyer because it had a lot of evidence that he didn't know about that went against his client. He, he felt rather ambushed asked for an adjournment of 40 days and was offered one of three hours uh, and uh, departed from the hearing in response, uh, saying, you know, I, I can't work under these conditions kind of thing. Um, the appeal was decided in favour of the Home Office in his absence and there was an appeal to the Upper Tribunal, which, well, some, some of the words that appear in the judgment in respect of the appeal are disingenuous, inaccurate and absurd. So we uh, have an idea of what the judges thought of that. Um, basically, they, they seem to say that the situation was of the appellant's own making. You couldn't reward people who put in late documents um, as as they had and that uh, the representative should have taken the three-hour break and, and uh, gotten on with it, I suppose. Yes, it, it looks like an example of... Um picking picking the wrong fight doesn't it basically um because the the underlying problem in this case was that the the appellant had served late evidence so to complain about the home office responding a bit late and out of time was a bit too rich basically i think in the circumstances um and i i think that is our um our cue to drop the mic and, and flounce out of this podcast so goodbye